And now comes the part in our Sunday program where we are truly inspired to create our lives and again reminded that we too can fly. Will you welcome with me our own coach and flight sergeant, Reverend Patrick Cameron. Good morning. I had the mic, ear mic in my pocket when I came out this morning, so it took me a while to figure out why nobody could hear me, but I got there. All right. I have everything. I'm fully equipped, as are you. And so remember, if you were here last week, I invited everyone to um, greet one another as if you were disinterested, and then I invited you to greet one another as if you were greeting long-lost friends you hadn't seen in 30 years. So I'm not going to ask you to get up today and do that. But what I'm going to ask you to do is close your eyes and imagine that feeling of greeting and unconditional love because we can capture that essence whether we're doing it or not. And it is in the imagination and and the memory that are so powerful. So let us call to mind that experience and that aliveness. And I'm going to invite you all to stay seated today as we sing this song and bask in that aliveness, that, that consciousness of unconditional love. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy. For all the world And there's quite enough love And quite enough power To walk through our every fear For spirit One spirit Is in this very room In this very room In this very room So I invite you to know with me in this moment One life God's life, perfect life, my life, here and now Always And in that remembrance, in that recognition, in that unification That life is my life I open myself, my heart, my mind to that experience. I'm lifted up. My heart is cracked open. I'm guided and directed, resource supplied. Wherever I am, whomever I am with, I am guided and infused with that divine activity of co-creation, dynamic, flowing in and through an asthma. That life is sweet and getting sweeter all the time. That something wonderful is happening here and now, despite the conditions of my world, because facts change all the time. And so I give thanks for the remembrance. I give thanks for the opportunities and perhaps the obstacles or the delays in my journey to remind me and to solidify me in the the spiritual stamina and strength and understanding and deepening to know that whatever shows up in my life, I am equipped for. And it is all a blessing and all a gift. It is all here for me. And standing in that with you, wherever we are in this moment, whatever it looks like in this moment, knowing that the right and perfect idea is is given birth in my and your consciousness. And that's enough. The next step is made clear. I give thanks for that. 
I release these words knowing that this day is already a success in the mind of the one and I get out of the way and let spirit play. For this I give thanks and I invite you to say with me knowing it is already complete in the mind of the infinite and so it is. All right. Thank you, Brown. So today I wanted to talk about the direct experience of the infinite. And people are always fascinated. I went down and did that documentary a few weeks ago in, in Los Angeles, and that was the first question they asked, explain your experience of the infinite. And I said, for me, it's always been a vibration. It's always a resonance. So it's not a location. It hasn't, you know, you know I've had people, I've been in meditation class and say, you know, geez, I went into meditation, it was so deep, and then at one point this cloud appeared, and then through the cloud came this purple fist, and then these golden wings appeared, and on and on and on for like 10 minutes. I'm like, well, I just was thinking about my grocery list for a while and then I fell asleep, you know, so I mean, I always felt left out and so what I realize is what we teach is that, you know, that there, there's no spot on the planet where God is not it's, the, it's, that, it's that inspiration of music or it's that turning of a phrase or it's the experience we watch on the, on the internet, some YouTube experience that, that lifts us up or it's a conversation we have with one another or if you're here at one o'clock today one of our, one of our practitioners is going to sh- share a story of her journey that's quite wonderful. And we're going to talk about the theme because it's important. What we do here is we help change lives in a meaningful, powerful way. And you can still be a United Church of Canada. You can be a Unitarian. You can be a Catholic. You can be a Jew. You can be whatever you want to be. You don't have to give up any of that to participate in what we, we have to offer because we're not interested in that. We're just interested in the evolution, the continued revelation of the divine gifts that you come wired with, hardwired with. And so last week I was talking a bit about some of the Esther Hicks stuff and I said how much I appreciate Esther's uh, uh, articulation because it's so close to what I believe Ernest Holmes talked about. And in it I said that one of the things that Esther said is that when we, when we have something we're worrying about, we are, we are conditioning ourselves to that vibration. It's just the way thought works. So when we have something that we're mulling over and we're worried about and it's creating anxiety, we are conditioning our, our being to that vibration. And then what happens is we continue to bring more and more of that into our lives because that is, becomes the subjective nature of our, of our being. And so after, cl- after class, after, well, it is a, sort of a class, isn't it? But after service, somebody came up to me and said, you know, I was in a situation, a business situation, because I talked about the feeling nature. I said, we need to move into feelings that allow us to feel better. And he said, you know, I was in a work situation and we got so caught up in the feelings that the business collapsed. And I said, well, that's an example of collapsing into the feelings. And Carl Jung talked about it. He said it's like loading a boat. It's like putting our boat on the shore and loading it before we sail away. And what Jung said is if we don't put enough ballast in it, if there's not enough weight there, we just flitter away. And that's kind of the idea of, you know, everything is right and perfect and my life is marvelous and everything is wonderful on and on and on, when the facts of your life may not reflect that. And so it's really about stopping and doing the work and looking at it. And there's, you know, this, this work requires, this, this journey requires us to make choices. And if some of the choices aren't reflecting that, if that's what we long for, it's great we long for it. But to use affirmation as denial is a mis- misuse of the practice. And the other example Young says is that when we load our boat too heavy, as soon as we leave the shore and the water gets deep enough, it sinks. Because we take personal responsibility for everything and everything is so heavy and the world is going to hell in a handbasket and on and on and on and on. It is that, it's that balance. And so, with emotions, I want to share this with you because Dr. Holmes talks about this in this wonderful book, Living the Science of Mind, which is the book of the month. 
And this is wonderful stuff. There's these short chapters in here, and I can open it up at any point in time and go, wow, that guy was a genius. He's still a genius because he's still with us. He wrote something down. He says this in the book, God Talks to the Heart. While we admire the intellect because we are the science of mind, while we admire the intellect, we must realize that the intellect is not the creative factor in the universe. Rather, it is feeling that is creative. It is feeling that is creative. The real creative power of the mind is deeper than the intellect. It passes into the realm of feeling and acceptance. You see, that's why we do the affirmation. Because the affirmation, we must embody it. And pretty soon we embody it, just like we embodied the worry, we can embody a different idea. That life is for us all the time, all the time. Whatever's showing up, I'm equipped to handle it. doesn't matter. If I'm, I'm, if I'm thrown into sorrow, I'm going to cry and cry and cry. I'll get over it. I'm done. I bring myself back to the foundation of who and what I am, but we're able to be more, more in sync and to, pro, and to process the feelings as they come. It's not that we don't, I don't think it's that we ever lose our capacity to, to care about one another deeply. It's just we don't stay stuck in that condition. We don't collapse into it, as Jung talked about. We can have the full experience of it. We can process it. We can have the conversations we need to have with ourselves or others, and we move forward. The creative power of mind, as Holmes says, is deeper than the intellect. It passes into the realm of feelings and acceptance. And yet it is the intellect or the self-conscious faculties that must speak the word in order that every obstruction may be cleared away. So we use our conscious mind to impact the subconscious mind. Basic metaphysics. That's why affirmations are so important. But we also have to be timely and appropriate with our affirmations because if they're, once again, form of a denial, it doesn't serve a purpose. It serves a purpose. It keeps, keeps us in denial. Bless you. We, we could coin no better expression than to say that God speaks to the heart through a language of feeling, a feeling which is affirmative. See, a feeling which is affirmative. This is what Esther Hicks is talking about. We must feel things that allow us to lift our vibration. That's why when I, we came together today, I said, remember when we came together last week, the, the, the feeling of meeting a long-last friend that we haven't seen in 30 years. We're making it up. But we're making up stuff all the time. We have experiences. I had, maybe not you, but I've had experiences as a young person. And, and say I was 15 or 16 years old, by the time I'm 25, I have changed that story so much to reflect where I am in, in consciousness and emotionally triggered that it has, no, it has no reality in what actually happened because I've made up all these stories about it. Most of my life I did that. I'm making stuff up, so not, why not make something up that I'm moving into this vibrancy of, of wholeness, of, of potency, of creativity? I want to share with you, because Holmes continues. This is just so important for us to get this. The best comparison, Dr. Holmes says, the best comparison I can think of is the feeling that an artist has towards beauty. An artist has towards beauty. When Kevin gets up and sings his song, there's something that's happened there. We have artists here. See, this is a colony of artists. This is why I know, and I just want to... I just, this is, we don't, do, we don't do church. We do spiritual theater, in my opinion. I'm serious. I don't, if, I'm, if I can't come here and, and I'm not inspired, how are you going to be inspired? And I look out in the world and I say, man, the world, the world needs a bigger idea. I can think of, the, of, I can think of is the feeling of the, an artist towards beauty. For beauty is an invisible essence. An all-pervading, all-penetrating something that cannot be adequately expressed in words, but only in thoughts. It is an inward emotion of the mind which reaches out until it strikes something, a corresponding chord emanating from the universe itself. It's a vibration. It's a conversation. See, beauty is, an essence, is, a, a, is a quality of the infinite. And so when beauty is, when we're looking at everywhere we, everywhere we look, we see beauty. 
We're making that up too. But if, if, if we, then all of a sudden we're in that vibration of the most high more consistently. This is what an artist feels. In a sense, he or she weds himself to the essence of beauty and draws it into his own being until beauty becomes diffused through this technique and makes an imprint that the intellect cannot analyze. It's an experience. It's just an experience. It's the awe factor. You know, you ever, the other morning, last week I talked about the sunrises. Can't see them right now because there's a bit of white stuff coming down. But before that, there was this orange sunrise. I didn't get up in the morning and it was, you know, about 4.30 or whenever the sun was coming. It was not that early, but it was early. And Laura's still sleeping. I didn't go down the hallway and say, oh, it's an orange sunrise today and it's coming up and there's a bright blue purple thing. I'm describing the whole thing because it's indescribable. You just take it in. You breathe it in. So Holmes knew that. Then intellect stands in awe from the supreme reality, yet still knowing that it is the essence of its true being waiting to be articulated. Perhaps this is real in the true meaning of communion. Something beyond prayer is ordinary thought of. Something which cannot be described but can be felt. And he goes on and on in this chapter. But it's powerful, powerful stuff. So we either get to decide we're artists or we're something else. And I, I'm, I'm working with an idea right now. I'm working with a discipline. And a dear friend of mine, one of my prayer partners, has been a prayer partner of mine for over 20 years now, recommended a book. And so I kept procrastinating and procrastinating. And the book's about procrastination. I thought, how appropriate. <laughs> so finally, last week, we're doing our prayer work. He says, have you gone and bought the book yet? And I said, no, not yet. But I'm fixing to get ready. You know how you're fixing to get ready? And so finally, I went down to chapters on White Ave. It wasn't there. So I ordered it online, and it came in like two days. And it's a book called The Art of War. Not The War of Art, but The Art of War by Stephen Pressfield. And in it, he talks about the artist and the fundamentalist. The artist and the fundamentalist. They both confront the same issue, the mystery of their existence as individuals. Each asks the same question, who am I? Why am I here? And what is the meaning of life? These are not easy questions, as he says. Who am I? Why am I here? They're not easy because the human being, we are not wired to function as individuals. We're wired tribally to act as part of a group. Our psyches are programmed by millions of years of hunter-gatherer evolution. We know that the clan, we know what the clan is. We often know how to fit into the band and the tribe. What we don't know is how to be alone. We don't know how to be free individuals. The artist and the fundamentalist arise from societies at different stages of development. The artist is the advanced model. They, their, cult, their culture, the artist's culture, possesses affluence, stability, enough excess of resources to permit the luxury of self-examination. We have such a gift, this is abundance, for us to be able to come together and even contemplate these ideas. If we had less advantage, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. We'd be out fending for ourselves, feeding our families in some more uh, demanding way, or finding shelter, whatever it may be. The artist is grounded in freedom. And this, our teaching, Dr. Holmes said over and over again, this is a teaching of freedom. To free ourselves from the old conditioned ways, from the, the cultural conditioning, from the race consciousness that, is, that wants to hold us back. Like the crabs, the story of the crabs, when they put the crabs in the basket, and one of the crabs almost makes it out, the other crabs grab up and reach and pull them back down. It's just what crabs do. The artist is grounded in freedom. He is not afraid of it. He is lucky. He was born in the right place. Well, I think we create our luck by our consciousness, but we were born in the right place by right of consciousness. We believe in progress and evolution, which we do. 
Our faith is that hum- humankind is advancing, however haltingly and perfectly, towards a better world. Something wonderful is happening here. That's our conversation. That's our language. The fundamentalist ent- entertains no such notion. The truth is not out there waiting revelation. It has already been revealed for the fundamentalist. See, there's no new thought. There's nothing to, to share. We know it all. In fact, the goal, as he said, is, that, is to get back to that. So the fundamentalist says, you know, all the truth has been revealed. It's either been through Jesus or Muhammad or Karl Marx or whoever you believe in. And it's to get that and restore that in our experience. Fundamentalism is the philosophy of the powerless, the conquered, the displaced, and the disposed. Its spawning ground is the wreckage of political and military defeat. As, and we have enough history to see this. So when we look at the world, when I look at, and I look at the United States and I talk to my mother who is really, really scared. She's 87 years old, really scared about what Obama's going to do and what's going to happen because there's a, lot of, there's a lot of scary stories that people share. And Obama's had two years to straighten everything out and he hasn't done it, so let's get rid of him. And people are angry. Not everyone is angry. But you watch it. You watch how people get louder and louder and louder. And it's not about yelling louder. Believe me, if yelling louder made a difference, I'd be screaming at you right now. Fundamentalism is the philosophy of the powerless, the conquered, the displaced, and the disposed. Its spawning ground is the wreckage of political and military defeat. As Hebrew fundamentalism arose during the Babylonian captivity, as white Christian fundamentalism appeared in the American South during Reconstruction after the Civil War, as the notion of the master race evolved in Germany following World War I, in such desperate times, the vanquished race would perish without a doctrine that restored hope and pride. So they need this. Got to have a story to hang on to. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because that's going to, we're always, Jesus said we're always going to have the poor amongst us. He was talking about a level of, of consciousness and awareness. We're always going to have that. But the point is, is that to just simply understand it and not let it, and not collapse into it. He continues, what exactly is Despair. It is the despair of freedom, the dislocation and emasculation experienced by the individual cut free from the familiar and comforting structures of the tribe and the clan, the village and the family. It is the state of the modern life. The fundamentalist, or more accurately, the beleaguered individual who comes to embrace fundamentalism cannot stand freedom. He cannot find his way into the future, so he he retreats to the past. He returns in imagination to the glory days of his race and seeks to reconstruct both them and himself in the purer, more virtuous light. He gets back to basics, to fundamentals. Fundamentalism and art are mutually exclusive. There is no such thing as fundamentalist art. This does not mean the fundamentalist is not creative because they are. Rather, the creativity is inverted. He creates destruction. Even the structures he builds, his schools and networks of organizations are dedicated to annihilation of his enemies and of himself. The fundamentalist is consumed with Satan, whom he loves as he loves death. It is coincidence that the suicide bombers of the World Trade Center frequent in strip clubs during their training, or that they conceived of their reward as a squadron of virgin brides and the license to ravish them in the flesh pots of heaven. The fundamentalist hates and fears women because he sees them as vessels of Satan, temptress like Delilah who seduced Samson from his power. The humanist, on the other hand, believes that humankind as individuals is called upon to co-create the world with God. This is why he values human life so highly. In this view, things do progress. Life does evolve. 
Each individual has value, at least potentially, in advancing this cause. The fundamentalist cannot conceive of this. In a society, dis- dissent is not just crime, but apostasy. It is heresy, transgression against God himself. So when we believe, as the humanist does, that the, the, the bigger idea is waiting to get, be given birth, there are people on the planet that say there's no new idea. See, we're new thought. We don't have any new thoughts to share. But what we have the opportunity to do is give birth to the new thought in this moment, wherever we are. And the, the way we're inspired by that is our conditions. It's what we've outpictured in our lives. The fundamentalists would tell you you're stuck with that. And what the artist will tell you is these are the facts, but facts change all the time. And I think it's important to understand that so that the thing that, that for me when I read this is to have compassion and understand. I understand that now better. I understand why people are so scared and so angry. But I don't agree with it and they don't represent me. But I also honor their right to express that. And so when I look at it, it's not from judgment, it's from discernment to say, I get it, I get it, you're upset. I'm just not going there with you. And it's so powerful. It's such a powerful stand to take. He talks about the call in this book by Stephen Pressfield, the call. We're all called to something. He said the rule of thumb is this. The more important a call or action is to our soul's evolution, the more resistance we will feel towards pursuing it. The more important a call or action is to our soul's evolution, the more resistance we will feel towards pursuing it. He goes on and on and on, page after page, about what resistance looks like. I, um, anyone here has ever written a book? I know Julie has, but he talks about the whole process. He said, I love this. He, he's, uh, and he uses all this in metaphor. He's, a, he's an author. He, he says that Somerset, Somerset uh, Mogham, who's a writer, said... He wrote on a schedule, he was asked if he wrote on a schedule or when struck by inspiration. He said, I write only when inspiration strikes. Only when inspiration strikes. He, fortunately, it strikes every morning at 9 o'clock sharp. <laughs> he said, that's a pro. That's a professional versus an amateur. And I think it relates so much to spiritual practice. Oh, I don't do meditation because it's inconvenient. Okay, or I, it, I'm, it's so, you know, I, I didn't see the purple fist. I haven't seen it for weeks now. And I was pretty busy. You know, the Edmonton Journal came and I wanted to read that and there were some one ads I needed to do and then I had to replace the shoelaces in my shoes and I've just been so busy. It's called resistance. Fortunately, it strikes every morning at nine o'clock sharp. So are you a meditator or not a meditator? Do you do affirmative prayer? Are you mindful? Are you examining your life? He continues, in terms of, re- of resistance... Mogham was saying, I despise resistance. I will not let it phase me. I will sit down and do my work. I will sit down and do my meditation. I will sit down and do my spiritual practice. I will sit down and remind myself the truth of my being and where my life is going. Mogham reckoned another deeper truth, that by performing the mundane physical act of sitting down and starting to work, he set in motion a mysterious but ineffable sequence of events that would provide, produce inspiration, as surely as if the goddess had synchronized her watch with his. He knew if he built it, she would come. See, we're immersed in it. You want the direct experience of the infinite? It's doing the work, whether you're writing a book. But it's that practice. Dr. Ken Gordon wrote a beautiful article a number of months ago. And what he said in it is that he was here Tuesday night. He said, our philosophy has many facets, one of which is certainly self-discipline. 
And by definition, self-discipline is training our mind and our character. But he said, he, further on in the article, he said that Luciano Pavarotti was quoted as saying, people think I'm disciplined. I'm not disciplined. It is not discipline. It is devotion. It is devotion. See, there's a whole different energy to discipline. Do you like disciplining yourself? I talked to these um, musicians this morning. We did a prayer. And, I, and in the prayer, I honored their, their devotion. All artists. See, we're all artists in our lives if we choose to be. And we can all be in divine co-creation with it, as Dr. Holmes talks about it. And it is the feeling nature. And it is establishing ourselves in the, in the, in the spiritual practices, the remembrances, even if for a moment throughout the day, to bring ourselves back. Yesterday, I was, <clears throat> I was re-stringing my guitar and I, was, and I hadn't done it in months, and Brian, and, and, and so I have, I have to heal this because it used to take me a week to re-string my guitar, so I got it done within four hours yesterday. But as I was pulling one of the pins that holds the strings in, it, it just snapped. And I thought, this is weird because I was so careful, and I know they're fairly brittle, but I was just pulling it up and pulling, and it just snapped. And I thought, oh. So I told Laura, I'm going to go replace this string, this, this pin. So I went down to one of the music shops on White Ave. There's guitar shops on White Ave, if you've been down there. And I went to the first one, no pins. So I pulled on the second one, no pins. And I thought, okay, this is turning into an adventure. So I drive down to the next one, and there's a group of people there, and they're all in white shirts. It says, stop the violence. And so, and I just thought, oh, okay. And I parked, because I, I found the park spot. I had to walk through the midst of them. There were probably 30 people there. And so as I walked through, they gave me a flyer, and I looked at a picture of a young boy, 20 years old. And in 2006, yesterday was the anniversary where he was swarmed and murdered on White Avenue. He'd left a bar sometime early on a Sunday morning. It was the anniversary of that, and the family was there. And they were getting, it was so cold, they were getting in and out of this truck and warming themselves up on sort of a rotation. And so I, I came home and I Googled it. And I just thought... You know, you're overcome with sadness. I have 20-year-olds in my life and my family, you know, so I can relate. I have tremendous empathy. But I thought about why do we do this? You know, why do we get together and have these conversations? And it is giving birth to consciousness. And it's in such subtle ways. And I think that to long for the experience of the infinite, it's possible right here and right now. We don't have to go up to a mountaintop we don't have to do anything special other than open ourselves to the experience. And as Holmes suggests and, and hints, it's the beauty. It's stepping into the beauty. But I think it also requires that devotional piece that, that uh, Malgam is talking about. Yeah, I just do it when I'm inspired. I do my meditation when I'm inspired. And fortunately, every morning at 9 o'clock, I sit down and do my meditation. Or every morning I get up at 6 o'clock and I do my meditation. Or I do my exercise. Or I do whatever ritual it is that puts me into that conversation. He, he, he goes on in this book. I want to share with you. He talks about being an amateur or a pro in our lives. And I think it's so true of our spiritual practice. He said, the amateur believes he must first overcome fear. And then they can do the work. The professional knows that fear can never be overcome. He knows there's no such thing as a fearless warrior or a dread-free artist. Just do the meditation anyway. When Henry, what Henry Ford does, now Henry Ford, up until the time he was 75, was the last time he did a play. Remember the actor Henry Ford, Jane, uh, Jane Fonda's, uh, not Henry Ford, Henry Fonda. 
Henry Fonda, 75 years old, still doing theater. Every performance, he would puke before he went on stage. He was so nervous. Guy had won Academy Awards, won Oscars, won Emmys. And he said, so what he would do, what Henry Fonda does, after puking into the toilet in his dressing room, is to clean up and march out on stage. He's still terrified, but he forces himself forward in spite of his terror. He knows that once he, he gets out into the action, his fear will recede and he'll be okay. See, there's a, there's a whole vibration waiting for us. When we step into it and we open to it, we slow down long enough, all of a sudden we're informed in ways we can't even imagine. Stephen Pressfield talks about writing the book. He says, I write from 10.30 till 3.30 every afternoon. He talks about his ritual, and that's his work. He doesn't let anything distract him. This is his work. That's his time. And he said afterwards he goes for a walk. And he said when he's, when he's on the walk, all of a sudden the conversation takes another uh, a vibration. And all of a sudden he's being reminded as he walks. You know that word on page three that you did today? Change this word to this. And he has a tape recorder. And he talks into it. And he said the whole way along he's, being, he's in this conversation. Where does that conversation come from? It comes from being in co-creation with the infinite. It's understanding. See, we're here to give birth to that. And so when we, we see these incidents that happen on White Avenue, which is our neighborhood, this is our community, it's just ignorance being expressed. I mean, it's just sad at so many levels. There's that human part of us. I, you know, I, I have great empathy for this family, and they were standing right there in this frigid cold, handing these flyers out. And I went on the website, and I looked at it, and I just thought, you know, the, the gift in this, the blessing in this, is these people taking a stand for this and saying, we will not support this anymore. They didn't just collapse into their sorrow. They put their sorrow into something that was meaningful and impactful, and it impacted my life. And I look at our community, and I look at these young kids. They're going to come up and sing a song. One of our young girls wrote this song today. They're going to sing at the end for it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. To, to be able to come to a community like this and be part of this, to be supported as, as artists in our life, whether we're writing a book or we're painting a picture or we're helping people in a healthcare facility or we're just being a great mom or dad or brother and sister and bringing the artistry to what we do so that everyone on the planet, a world that works for everyone, there's huge changes going on right now. Did you see the, the Oprah with John of God? One of our ministers was on the show. Ernie Chu is one of our religious science ministers. And he had gone down to do this operation. He had a tumor removed from his liver. I mean, I don't understand all of it, but what I do know when I read the article in O Magazine and when I watched it, consciousness precedes experience. And these people have gotten to a point in their lives where they've reached their, their wit's end. All of the medical technology says, we can't help you anymore. Well, maybe we don't have to go to Brazil to say, you know what, there's a power for good in the universe. Have its way by means of me. Guide me, lead me, direct me. And I'm in that conversation right now. And if I can't stay there, if you can't stay there, work with a practitioner who will support you in that. I'm not saying don't go if you feel called to do that, but it's exactly the same work we do. It's a spiritual vortex there. People sit down. There's, there's hundreds of people meditating every day. She got on a plane. Oprah's producer got on the plane. And who's sitting next to her going to Brazil was uh, Edwin Gaines, who's a unity minister, whose mission on the planet is to change the prosperity consciousness on the planet. I've met Edwin many times. And she was going down for an invisible surgery, they call it. It's a fascinating story. But when you reach your wit's end, when you reach rock bottom, sometimes you just open up and say, I don't know, but something within me does know. It's exactly what we teach. It's exactly what we teach. Tom McLaughlin. You remember Tom McLaughlin? He was Billy Jack. Remember Billy Jack? I don't know. I, was, you know I, watched, I went to see Billy Jack like 15 times when I was you know, 14 years old. 
Oh, Billy Jack was so good. He's beating up the bad guys. Oh, you know, he used to love that stuff. Because those bad guys had it coming. Well, Tom McLaughlin is still around. He's a Jungian therapist, and he works with people. He has a foundation. He works with people who have been given a, a death sentence with cancer. And he, he goes through all the technology. He said that the moment a person learns they've got terminal cancer, a profound shift takes place in their psyche. At one stroke in the, at one stroke in the doctor's office, they become aware of what really matters to them. That, that's the 60 seconds early, that 60 seconds earlier seemed all important suddenly appears meaningless. While people and concerns that he had till then dis, dismissed at once take on supreme importance. And so he goes on and on. He said, what happens? He said that the foundation, what they teach is that when we learn that we may die soon, everything changes. The ego, we move from ego to self, that divine spark of life. And he says this, this is how Tom Loughlin Foundation battles cancer. He counsels his patients not to just make the shift mentally, but to live it out in their lives. He supports the housewife in resuming her career in social work, urges the businessman to return to the violin, assists the Vietnam vet to write his novel finally. Miraculously, cancers go into remission. People recover. Is it possible, Tom Loughlin asks, that the disease itself evolved as a consequence of actions taken or not taken? In our lives, could our unlived lives have exacted their vengeance upon us in the form of cancer? And if they did, can we cure ourselves now by living these lives out? And many times, they do. If it's all for us, why wouldn't this be for us as well? And not, and not everyone is cured. There's a lady that was on the Oprah show, and she was talking about she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was so profound and she was on the show, and she'd been diagnosed like eight years, seven years earlier, and she was still had the cancer. But she just glowed. Her eyes were just sparkle, and she was so alive. And she said, you know what? The healing continues for me. The healing continues for me. Because she was so alive, even though her body still hadn't found the cure. And that, I believe, is, is such a powerful reminder to not confuse the cure with the healing. Whatever it is, because we are eternal. And the shift that happens within you and I and the determination and the commitment to sit down every morning at whatever time because that's when, that's when you decide inspiration strikes right here and right now to be in that conversation and help transform the world is such a gift and it's so powerful. So what we do, we keep on keeping on. We get up every morning and do the work. So Dr. Bitzer used to say. How do you do it, Dr. Bitzer? He was one of Dr. Holmes' contemporaries. He said, I get up every morning and I do my work. We have the opportunity today and tomorrow to get up and do the work and remind ourselves what's important. Where are we going to pour our energy? What conversation are we going to have? I was at a Empowering Edmonton this week, and one of the speakers talked about the jigsaw puzzle. Do you know what the most important piece in the jigsaw puzzle is? Thank you, Diane. Diane was here at the early prayer. Anybody else know? It's the picture on the box. It's not the first, it's not the corner, it's the picture on the box. Another great example of, so what's the picture on your box? Where are you headed? Think about that and work with that. You may not know right now, but that's okay. And if it scares you, that's a good thing. The things that scare us the most are the things that we're called most strongly to do. I love that because then I get to look at the fears of my life and say, oh, that's the thing I want to do. That's where I want to go. And it's a beautiful, lovely, powerful thing. Everything, everything, everything is for us. So it is. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>